This is episode 37 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Hello and welcome back to the Inner Game of Aging podcast. This is episode 37. As someone who constantly promotes dialogue on what aging is in our culture, I've spoken to many people and have learned many perspectives on the various views of aging all around us. In traveling through the discussions that I've had with people, I've collected many ideas and views on what aging is. I've been open to new research that suggests that we have this aging thing all wrong, that there are more empowering ways to view our aging process. I have spoken to many elderly people to learn the lessons of their life, both the good and the bad ones. And I've explored our cultural stereotypes, which influence how we see our own aging process, which, of course, is a heavy factor in having us exhibit the aging characteristics that we do as a culture. But there is a new sensitivity that seems to be emerging in me as I explore this entire landscape, a sensitivity that I didn't quite expect or plan for. I am starting to understand that there is a difference in the aging characteristics between the genders, between men and women. This difference is primarily embedded in how the two groups feel about their own aging, but there are more physical differences as well, as we will explore in this episode. Now, the difference between men and women have been studied since biblical times. Since that fateful day when Adam turned to Eve to say, Would you happen to know what I did with that extra rib I had around? We don't get to be the age we are now and still believe that there is no difference between the sexes. These differences may be mostly cultural, but these cultural differences stem from subtle elements of our biology. The fact that women bear children while men do not creates substantial differences when it comes to the perspective on what I call the four F's of life which are critical to our success as a species. Men and women see these survival characteristics slightly differently, which is probably good for us as a species. But the differences of approaching these four Fs can cause some conflict between the two genders. For example, let's take the first F, feeding. Now, it is hard to tell if the gender differences here come from our biology or from our culture. I will let you be the judge of that, but very few will deny that the two genders have slight differences in how we deal with this aspect of life. The next F is for fighting. There is no question in my mind that the two genders exhibit significant differences in this aspect of life. The world would probably probably be a more peaceful place if more women were in control of it. The next F is fleeing. 
I'm not sure that there's a difference in this area, as I see both groups run away from what they can't run away from in equal proportions. And the last F is for mating. Yes, I said mating, not what you think I said. And there is no question here that there are significant differences between the genders in this regard. But I am not looking at differences to say or to suggest that one is better than the other. That would be very counterproductive. I'm looking at differences so that we can understand each other, so that we can be more supportive of those people who we love and are aging around us as well. You see, understanding these differences allows us a view into the other side. And there are many people we love on the other side, so to speak. So understanding these differences allows us to support our loved ones a little bit better than we might have if without knowing these things. So many couples are being affected by increasing years without them ever realizing that this is where their problems may be coming from. As a husband observes his diminished athletic abilities due to aches and pains, or as a wife notices her gray and sees the different responses she is getting from both her children and her husband, things can get a little bit difficult inside of us in ways that leak out in unintended ways for our relationship. I have personal experience with this in my own marriage after our children left and we became empty nesters. I will share some of these experiences with members of the Aging Academy where I collect information that actually teaches us how to get older. If you haven't signed up for Aging Academy information, you can do so on the website. The website, of course, is innergameofaging.com. No spaces in Inner Game of Aging. Another benefit of the information that you will find in this episode is that we become sensitized to the different needs of people around us. Accepting differences is a key element of tolerance. It stops us from thinking there are only two types of people in this world, you and everybody else. The information in this episode attempts to diversify our thinking. It makes us less me-centric, understanding that other people face different problems than we do that are just as serious as ours. So understanding and accepting these differences helps us simply to become better citizens and stewards of all the people around us. But before we get to the real meat of this episode, I have to give you some cautions so that you can interpret what you're hearing in a better fashion. Much of what you are going to hear is using statistics to prove a conclusion. We always have to be careful when we are using statistics to see or not see any particular conclusion. Statistics have been used to tell more lies than anything else around. And in fact, 39.5% of all the statistics you hear are made up right on the very spot. Just like that one. Statistics uses suitably sized data sets to come to various conclusions about one thing or another. These data sets aggregate the characteristics of the data they represent. But right there is where the problem starts with statistics. 
because much of the research related to age involves conclusions drawn from the interpretation of data sets and statistics, I want to spend a bit more time than at first seems reasonable on why statistics should not be trusted. Here goes a good example of what I'm talking about. I ran across the following statistic while doing research for this particular episode. Older women have been found to be diagnosed with psychological problems three to four times more often than men. Now, listen to that statistic with a trained ear. And in fact, let me repeat it for you again. Older women have been found to be diagnosed with psychological problems three to four times more often than men. Now, if you heard that and concluded that older women are a lot crazier than older men, nothing could be further from the truth once you dig into this statistic. Let me explain. First of all, the statistic is talking about older women and not older men. This could mean that there is a bias, a sexist bias, in looking at the data. Our own stereotypes, our own cultural stereotypes, are not divorced from the conclusions we come to in looking at any set of data. So when we look at the set of data that represents older women, are we free from our own biases in looking at this data in order to make the proper conclusions? We know that our culture has certain stereotypes and biases in them. There's an ageist bias where we favor the younger side of life as opposed to the older side of life. And that bias will affect our conclusions. But there's also a sexist bias in our culture. Could it be that this sexist bias is influencing our conclusions on the set of data that's being used in this particular statistic? Women not only face an age bias, but a sexist bias as well. This is like double jeopardy. I wonder if men would exhibit more psychological problems if they were not only subject to the ageist bias, but were also subjected to the sexist bias as women are. Would their psychological problems increase under those circumstances? Furthermore, the living conditions for older men versus old women are noticeably different. There are many more women living close to the poverty line than there are older men. So, upon being classes older and then as a woman and now poor, I wonder if men were subjected to those same conditions, wouldn't they exhibit the same number, quantity, types of psychological problems as women do? But this statistic does not reflect any of that kind of thinking or analysis. It instead brings a conclusion and encourages the listener to come to his own rationale about that conclusion. This could be very dangerous. So how this data is collected becomes extremely important. The data may not represent the entire picture of what is being considered. And I suspect very strongly that that is the case in this case. But data collection is only part of the problem of statistics. So much comes from how these statistics, how the data set 
is being presented. Let me give you a few examples. The data set could unknowingly contain half-truths. What do I mean by that? Well, this data set does not represent the income levels or the education of the women who represent this data set. We may find that there are other correlations to be had that can be normalized out if these other factors were included as part of the normalized data. We are especially vulnerable to making incorrect conclusions when the data set that we are using has multiple factors in it, some of which may not have been identified in the data itself. As I mentioned in the previous example, income or education levels may have to be considered to truly understand the characteristic or the conclusion that is being drawn there. When a factor that is causing the characteristic to be has not been identified but is included in the data, we are very vulnerable to coming to the wrong conclusions. This is known in statistical terms as Simpson's Paradox. Simply stated, Simpson's Paradox says that a single set of data can show opposite or varying conclusions depending on how the data points within the data are grouped. They could be grouped to align with one factor or another, thereby swaying the conclusion to one side or another. Wikipedia has an excellent article on Simpson's Paradox as it relates to statistics. Please refer to that to understand how grouping the data set in particular ways can dramatically change the conclusion that is drawn from that data set. And another thing we need to be very careful of as we deal with statistics is the difference between cause and correlation. Just because a factor is correlated with another factor does not mean that either is causing the manifestation. Mixing up cause and correlation can lead to some pretty horrendous conclusions. For example, I can give you some pretty convincing statistics that fire causes firemen or that roosters cause sunrises. Just because two manifestations occur in association with each other does not mean that one is causing the other. These are not the only way statistics and the data they use can be used to trick us. We always have to be on guard when we are listening to statistics. Many mistakes can be made, sometimes dishonestly so, for the point of proving one thing or another. And this is especially true when we research our cultural aging characteristics. Oh my goodness, it just occurred to me, I was about to mention that some of this information about statistics you can find on the show notes page, and here I am, almost 15 minutes into the episode, and I have not yet reminded my audience here about the show notes page for this episode, where you can find more information about oh statistics, the aging differences that we'll discuss between men and women, and other things that are contained in this episode. I don't believe that I've gone this long, this long without mentioning the show notes page. And of course, you can find the show notes page for this episode 
at the usual URL, innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA37. Feel free to visit the show notes page where you can leave me comments about your experiences with what we're about to discuss, how you may have been fooled by statistics, how the public is being fooled by statistics, and your view on the aging characteristics that we're about to discuss in the second half of this episode. After listening to this episode in full, visit the show notes page and tell me what I left out in terms of aging differences or what I should not have included. Tell me how you feel about what we've discussed during this episode. I'd love to hear your opinions. And don't forget to join the Insiders Club on the website. Insider Club members receive regular information in their email with useful insights and perspectives, cool lifestyle hacks and adjustments we can all use to keep our vitality and vigor. Also, exclusive information regarding my own aging issues, where I am learning how to grow older and sharing that information with the Aging Academy members. So get in on this useful information and join the Insiders Club and the Aging Academy. You can explore all of this on the website at innergameofaging.com. No spaces. So, with statistics out of the way, let's move on to look at some of the differences of aging characteristics that we find in our culture between men and women. In speaking around about aging as I do, I have noticed a distinct difference of response to aging between men and women. Men seem to take aging in a more cavalier fashion than women do. Aging is a much more serious topic for women, it appears to me, than it is for men. I see many more women worry about getting older more than I do men. They're more worried about their gray. They're more worried about their wrinkles. They're more worried about their age. Many more women hide their age than men do. When I first noticed this, I said things to myself that weren't quite helpful for me to understand why I was seeing what I was seeing. My only excuse for doing this was that I'm I'm male in a male culture, doing the things that males do in terms of their thinking and seeing factors in our society. But slowly, I began to realize that there are valid reasons and factors for the differences of attitudes that I was seeing about aging, and I decided to look at them more closely. The most obvious difference, of course, between men and women is our reproductive systems. This determines more than you might imagine. Our reproductive system is a major factor in heart our hormonal makeup, and our hormonal makeup controls so much more of our thinking than you could imagine. With a healthy hormonal picture, we feel well-balanced, we feel integrated, we feel wholesome. Our wellness is dependent on this chemistry. Whether you are a man or a woman, when your reproductive system changes, you change. Those of you who have been exposed to more Eastern philosophies understand how powerful and important the root chakra is. This powerful root chakra is closely associated with our reproductive mechanisms in our bodies. 
And it appears that much of the differences in the aging characteristics between men and women come from the differences in our reproductive systems. They connect to it sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, through culture and stereotypes and other things of that nature that reflect our opinions about our reproductive systems or our opinions about the reproductive systems on the other side. Let me express these reproductive differences in a manner that relates to what I'm trying to study and explore. For a man, his reproductive system slowly declines over his life, but never really goes away completely. Indeed, we have legends throughout history of older men fathering children well past the time when they're supposed to. By comparison, the changes in a woman's reproductive system are rather dramatic once she reaches a certain age. And these changes affect a woman both emotionally, hormonally, and indeed culturally, much more so than men. But rather than study the biological intricacies of these particular differences, I'm much more fascinated by how these differences play out in our thinking and in our culture. In other words, how are these differences reflected in our aging characteristics in, and in our culture? Well, it turns out that these reproductive differences affect how we feel about aging quite significantly. So as boys and girls become men and women, and as men and women become older men and women, and as older men and women become elder men and women, these reproductive differences you know, affect a lot how we feel about the years that are passing. I hope I can explain it clearly, but as a woman views her years up ahead of her, she becomes fearful, stressed, or anxious about what lies up ahead for her in terms of her own body. The stress and anxiety may come about because there are new conditions to conquer in the years up ahead. She may become concerned about what she is moving into as she ages. Men, on the other hand, do not have this rapid dramatic change in their reproductive systems as women do. Testosterone decreases at a rate of about 1% per year for a man. That's a pretty gradual decline that's not even noticed by most men, no matter how old we get. Instead, it is the physical declines that worry men about their aging more than anything else. So whereas women are worried about what they are moving into as they age, men are more concerned about what they're leaving behind as they age. The physical declines and losses concern men and not the body's responses to the years that are up ahead. I am reminded here that most men, myself included, believed that they were tremendous athletes when they were young. And so next, I would like to look briefly and explore the differences between men and women in regards to our own self-image as we age. We all know that a positive self-image is a basic ingredient for happiness and that aging and our relationship to it will affect that self-image as the years pass. That statement is true for both men and women, but let's look a bit at how men feel about their older selves versus how women feel. 
Unfortunately, we cannot look at self-image without including some aspect of the system of cultures we exist in on a daily basis. After all, it is this system of cultures that provides the strongest influence over how we see ourselves and the world around us. And the field of medicine, of all places, gives us some good insight on how we are so influenced by our culture. How does the medical field give us such insight into the influence of culture? In a word, placebo. Yes, placebo, but that needs more of an explanation. With all the drug studies being conducted these days, it is important that we understand the placebo effect. In its broadest sense, a placebo could be a device, an action, a medication, a ritual, or any representation that is believed to produce or generate certain results when embraced. But the connection between the placebo and the desired result cannot be substantiated by physical or scientific means and methods. That was a mouthful and a lot to take in at one time. So let me repeat that. In the most generic sense, a placebo is any device, action, medication, ritual, or any representation that is believed to produce or generate certain results when embraced. But the connection between the placebo and the desired result cannot be substantiated by physical or scientific means and methods. One of the more famous placebos that I remember from my childhood is Dumbo's flying feather. You may recall that Dumbo could only fly when he knew he had his feather with him, his flying feather. This is a placebo. He believed in that feather, and that belief enabled him to fly, which he could do all along. Here are a few more modern, more classic examples of placebo. The Cub Scouts have what is called homesick medicine at summer camps. This is nothing more than Tic Tacs, that candy that you see that comes in little pill forms. It has been very effective in getting homesick children to engage in camp activities, making them less homesick. So the placebo in this case is the Tic Tac, simply because it's called homesick medicine. Another example is the classic sugar pill, which is given to relieve migraines because nothing else has worked so far. The patient feels the improvement of the new medication within a week. And another example of placebo that's a bit more relevant to me is bodybuilders were given a placebo instead of actual steroids, and they were told they were taking the latest breakthrough in supplement designed for gaining muscle and strength fast. More than half of these placebo-taking athletes gained substantial strength and muscle over the period of the study, but there was nothing in their supplements that would substantiate such a gain. In medicine, the placebo effect is no small potatoes. In many instances, it is a big part of the effect of a drug. Harvard Medical School researchers have indicated that as much as 50% of a drug's effect could be due to placebo. Now, that feels kind of crazy to me, especially as I see how powerful Big Pharma has become. But so be it. When initially discovered... 
It was determined that the placebo effect alone could cure up to 35% of a broad range of conditions and ailments that involve pain or poor stress management, a.k.a. anxiety. Although the accuracy of that initial study has been brought into question, no one is minimizing the powerful effect of placebo. They're only questioning how to quantify this effect. Right here is where I want to take a look at the most famous placebo of all, the infamous sugar pill. The sugar pill has been used in so many studies for headaches, for menopausal pain, for depression, for anything you can imagine. As long as we are looking at some sort of study, the sugar pill has been present as a placebo. This is what the medical industry turns to, to affect placebo studies. So, in the case of a study on migraine headaches, the sugar pill has been used to relieve migraine headaches in a significant portion of the study's participants. In another study on hypertension, that is, low blood pressure, this same sugar pill, with no therapeutic value, mind you, was used to raise blood pressure in a significant portion of those in that study. And in yet another study on anxiety, the same therapeutically nothing sugar pill actually lowered both heart rhythm and blood pressure in a statistically significant portion of those study participants. So how can this ubiquitous sugar pill be responsible for so many different effects when it is nothing more than a sugar concoction? The answer to this lies in the sort of information you give the patient when prescribing the quote-unquote medication. If you prescribe the pill telling him or her that a regimen of this medication will reduce the number of migraines, the sugar pill will have a different effect, so to speak, than if he or she was told that the pill will stimulate his heart rhythms and raise his blood pressure. And the same sugar pill has a still different effect if the patients are told that the quote-unquote medication will reduce their anxiety attacks, assuming the study is about anxiety. So researchers have determined that it is the information that is given and what the patient expects from the pill that determines the specific effect the placebo has on him. The effect could be good or bad for him, all depending on the information you give him to create his expectations of what will happen to him while on this medication. A quick side note here. This episode is rather broad. First, I go into depth about statistical issues, and now I'm expounding on in unusual detail about placebo. Oh, the places we go trying to understand our aging process. But now, let's get to why I introduced placebo. Stop for a minute and think about what I just said about the information that is given to a patient as he is administered a placebo. Don't our cultural stereotypes resemble that same sugar pill, only in a cultural form? Given what we just saw, what do you think will be the long-term result of telling older people that their memory is failing, their bones are getting weaker, they don't heal as fast, they're on the physical decline, and so on? These stereotypes form the basis of ageist attitudes that affect all of us in sometimes invisible ways. 
but cultural placebos make it difficult to distinguish between the biologically induced aging characteristics from our culturally induced aging characteristics. These two are different. And it takes very little imagination to see that these kinds of stereotypes are at the heart of some of the isms that are currently running around in our society. This can be further seen by exploring aging in the different cultures around the world. The aging characteristics of one culture can be very different than the aging characteristics of another. Now, we all know that women put a lot more effort into showing a youthful appearance as they gain the years than men do. In one of the multitude of surveys that are being conducted about aging aspects in our culture, we find that 42% of women indicate that they would consider Botox, plastic surgery, or some other form of feature enhancements, while only 18% of men say they would consider the same. Think of that difference for a minute. 42% of women versus 18% of men indicate the desire for some form of beautification procedure that isn't based on exercise or nutrition. There has to be a bigger story between those two numbers, 42% versus 18%. And I believe that the difference is in our culture. In this culture, we place a lot stronger emphasis on how a woman looks as opposed to how a man looks. There is no disputing this fact. We may not like it and think it is wrong, as I do, but I'm not here to tell us that this is right or wrong. I'm simply saying that it is. So, whereas in this culture, the value of a man isn't as affected by thinning hair, wrinkles, sagging skin, men will of course feel differently about the years passing than women do. So, we can reliably predict the outcomes of many of the surveys and research that tends to compare these two attitudes. The source of these differences mostly come from us as a culture and how they influence, influence us individually to feel about ourselves. But I did run across a few statistics that had me wondering a bit as to what story lay behind them. You see, facts and figures are just a representation of some story underneath that's producing them. And these few statistics just had me scratching my head a bit. The first statistic that I thought was interesting was that about 60% of both men and women, that's both genders here, thought that they look younger than other people their own age. Now, this strikes me as funny. 60% of us think that we look younger than those around us that are the same age. That means 40% of us think that we don't look as good as the average person does. 40% of us walk around not approving of ourselves in comparison to others. There is a story behind this that I do not yet know, but it just struck me as very interesting. I also ran across another interesting statistic that I felt had a small story behind it. And that is, nearly 70% of 
of African American women say they are not concerned at all about the signs of aging. Here again, I pondered, what is behind this statistic? What is making this so? Could it be that African American women have never relied on their beauty to get the things that they have in their life compared to the other groups in our population? Could it be that aging brings benefits that are more easily embraced by African American women? After all, the value of the wise old grandma is higher in this group, suggesting that the benefits of aging are more easily recognized here than they are in other segments of our population. It could also be that African American women are too concerned about maybe other things like survival or other things that take away from this concern of the aging factors. I don't know what it is, but for the moment, I'm suggesting to myself that African-American women related to aging differently than other groups in our population, and I hope to explore the reasons for that at some future time. So, as I said before, it is easy for us to see that women have a stronger societal pressure to resist and hide the signs of their aging than men do. This started to explain to me why I was getting noticeably different reactions and responses in talking about aging between the two genders. It became obvious to me why, in general, men seem to have an easier time with dealing with the signs of aging than women do, as every statistic that I read point out to me. In general, even a woman's economic status is more closely tied to her aging than that of a man. This was borne out by the following statistic. No matter which way you gather the numbers, women over 65 have a 30% higher unemployment rate than men over 65. Yes, I am aware that there are many ways in which that unemployment figure could be determined, but all of the approaches used offer up the same result when it comes to comparing the genders. None of this comes as a surprise when we look at how our culture and its institutions treat the aging of women as compared to the aging of men. Our culture takes advantage of our fear of aging, especially in women. The cosmetic industry represents billions of dollars, all fostering a woman's fear of looking older and older. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look younger. We all do. I feel the same desire myself. But such strong focus on the qualities and physical aspects of youth turns us away from the beauty of aging and what it is really all about. Growing older is a vital process that humans must go through, and our culture does not represent this properly. I leave it to you to find all the examples of this in your environment. But the subtle message is that if you fail to stay young and beautiful, that you are somehow less than what you should be, in a manner that the whole world can see. This is most certainly the wrong message to maximize the impact of our older years. When I walk into almost any general retail establishment, the number of products that are geared toward women are almost two or three times the number of products that are geared toward men. I admit that there are some legitimate reasons for this, 
but it still represents what we are doing to our women in this culture. There is simply a lot of money riding on women's fear of aging, and those who benefit from this do not want this to go away. This focus reduces the possibility of what women could be in our culture, and it encourages them to focus on what they look like rather than what they are inside and the power that resides there. Men are free to explore the possibilities of their aging with much less regard to these kinds of cultural factors. So I suspect that the message of growing older without ever growing old will appeal to more men than women since men are culturally freer to focus on these kinds of things. The majority of people over 65 are women. There are 77 men over 65 for every 100 women over 65. This is one statistic that, of course, brought a smile to my face. I am getting older after all, and reaching that segment of the population where women outnumber men, well, that's not a bad thing for me. Regardless of marital status, I don't know what man would not smile at those possibilities. But in order to take advantage of this, that means we men have to age better ourselves. That could be one reason for embracing the message of the Aging Academy. Older men need to fight the tendency to isolate themselves socially. Women are much more adept at gathering the social structures around them that they need to support their lives in the later years. Men, not so much. The Aging Academy teaches that we must stay socially involved as much as we can to maintain our energy and vitality. Looking back, I can see that I may have been somewhat insensitive to these gender differences, but I would like to correct that moving forward. Primarily because of our culture, aging is more difficult for women. I know that now. I fear that the messages and concepts coming from the inner game of aging or the aging academy have not truly attended to these differences. If this is true, and to correct this, I would love to hear from more women about what aging has meant for them. I would like to understand more deeply that which I feel I may not yet understand about these differences. Please tell me what the passing of years has meant to you in your life. Please help me understand what interferes with the beauty and grace of getting older for you. Changing the conversation to reflect our power with the passing of years would be a true gift to our culture. What stops you from being proud of your years rather than embarrassed by them? This has become a burning question for me, which only you can help me answer. And there are several ways you can reach me to help me understand these things. Probably the best way is to leave a comment or two on the show notes page for this episode. You can find the show notes page with our usual pattern for URLs, and that would be innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA37. You can also email me directly using the following email address, lee at innergameofaging.com. 
So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We have taken an admittedly incomplete look at aging differences between men and women. We also took several detours along the way. Statistics is such an important part of our lives without us even knowing about it. It is useful to understand it and the many ways it could be lying to us. And understanding placebo is another detour we took that I felt was extremely important to understand. That concept of placebo goes a long way in helping us to understand any of the marginalized population segments that we have in our society. It also helps us to understand how we become a part of the creation of that which we prefer not to see. So, yes, this episode was rather diverse in the things it touched. But the show notes page for this episode contains timestamps into this podcast episode as to when each of the topics that were introduced were spoken about. This makes it very easy for you to go back and listen to those topics in order to assure understanding if that is what you desire. I hope to be putting more timestamps in my show notes pages in the future for your convenience. Another thing I would like to remind my listeners about is to subscribe to this podcast. Many of you already do. Some of you may be listening to this podcast for the first time. Others may have stumbled on it from who knows where. But when you subscribe to these podcasts, you do you get them downloaded to your podcast player automatically whenever I release them. My release schedule hasn't been as religious or as regular as I would like to be. But when you subscribe to the podcast, you get these releases whenever I put them out. As irregularly as I've been doing them, you will get every single one. And we do have some very interesting stuff coming up ahead. Our next episode is about medical marijuana. And we have other episodes planned about serendipitous events occurring, about expert guests coming on. There's a lot more planned as we evolve and transform who we have been in the inner game of aging. I will be going into a lot more detail about the changes and happenings up ahead in future episodes, in my newsletter, and on my website. If you are not part of the Insiders Club, you can be the first to get some of this information by joining. Simply visit the show notes page and you will be asked to join the Insiders Club. It's just that simple. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or any of the platforms where you normally use to discover new podcasts. And with that, let me say, this is Lee Mawat signing off. I will see you in the next episode. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Mawat. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. That's the inner game of aging, no spaces.com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old. <laughs>